Section 3 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Gammons. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 2 Country Visits, Part 1. We didn't pay many visits, but sometimes when the weather was fine, and there was no hunting, and W. gone upon an expedition to some outlying village, Madame A. and I would start off for one of the neighboring chateaux. We went one day to the Chateau de C., where there was a large family party assembled, four generations. The old grandmother, her son and daughter, both married, the daughter's daughter, also married, and her children. It was a pretty drive, about an hour all through the forest. The house is quite modern, not at all pretty. A square white building with very few trees near it, the lawn and one or two flower beds not particularly well kept. The grounds ran straight down to the Videcotre forest where Monsieur M. has good shooting. The gates were open. The concierge said the ladies were there. They didn't have to be summoned by a bell. That is one of the habits of this part of the country. There is almost always a large bell at the stable or commun, and when visitors arrive and the family are out in the grounds, not too far off, they are summoned by the bell. I was quite surprised one day at Bonneville when we were in the woods at some little distance from the chateau when we heard the bell, and my companion, a niece of Madame A., instantly turned back, saying, That means there are visits. We must go back. We found all the ladies sitting working in a corner salon with big windows opening on the park. The old grandmother was knitting, but she was so straight and slight with bright black eyes that it wouldn't have seemed at all strange to see her bending over an embroidery frame like all the others. The other three ladies were each seated at an embroidery frame in the embrasures of the windows. I was much impressed, particularly with the large pieces of work they were undertaking, a portière, covers for the billiard table, bed, etc. It quite recalled what one had always read of feudal France, when the seigneur would be off with his retainers hunting or fighting, and the châtelaine, left alone in the château, spent her time in her bower, surrounded by her maidens, all working at the wonderful tapestries one sees in some of the old churches and convents. I was never much given to work, but I made a mental resolve that I, too, would set up a frame in one of the drawing rooms at home and had visions of yards of pale blue satin, all covered with wonderful flowers and animals, unrolling themselves under my skillful fingers. But I must confess, it remained a vision. I never got further than little crochet petticoats, which clothed every child in the village. To make the picture complete, there should have been a page in velvet cap and doublet, stretched on the floor at the feet of his mistress, trying to distract her with songs and ballads. The master of the house, Monsieur M., was there, having come in from shooting. He had been reading aloud to the ladies, Alfred de Musset, I think. That part of the picture I could never realize, as there is nothing W. loathes like reading aloud except perhaps being read to. They were very friendly and easy, showed us the downstairs part of the house, and gave us goûter, not tea, wine, and cake. The house looked comfortable enough, nothing picturesque. A large square hall with horns, whips, foxes' brushes, antlers, and all sorts of trophies of the chase on the walls. They are sporting people, all ride. The dining room, a large bright room, was paneled with life-size portraits of the family. Monsieur and Madame M., in hunting dress, green coats, tricorn hats, on their horses, the daughter of the house and one of her brothers, rowing in a boat on a small lake. The eldest son, in shooting dress, corduroys, his gun slung over his shoulder, his dog by his side. They were all very like. We strolled about the garden a little, and saw lots of pheasants walking peacefully about the edge of the woods. They made me promise to come back one day with W., he to shoot and I to walk about with the ladies. 
we saw the children of the fourth generation and left with the impression of a happy, simple family party. Monsieur M was the conseiller général of the N and a colleague of W's. They always stayed at the same hotel, de la Hure, in Long, at the time of the conseil général, and Monsieur M was much amused at first with W's baggage. A large bathtub, towels, for in small French provincial hotels towels were microscopic and few in number, and a package of tea, which was almost an unknown commodity in those days. None of our visitors ever took any, and always excused themselves with the same phrase, Merci, je vais bien, evidently looking upon it as some strange and hurtful medicine. That has all changed, like everything else. Now one finds tea not only at all the chateaux with brioche and toast, but even in all the hotels, but I wouldn't guarantee what we get there as ever having seen China or Ceylon. And it is still wiser to take chocolate or coffee, which is almost always good. We had a lovely drive back. The forest was beautiful in the waning light. As usual, we didn't meet any vehicle of any kind, and were quite excited when we saw a carriage approaching in the distance. However, it proved to be W and his dog cart. We passed through one or two little villages, quite lost in the forest. Always the same thing, one long, straggling street with nobody in it. A large farm at one end and very often a church at the other. As it was late, the farm gates were all open, the cattle inside, teams of white oxen drinking out of a large trough. In a large farm near Boursun, there was much animation and conversation. All the beasts were in, oxen, cows, horses, chickens, and in one corner a flock of geese. The poor little goose girl, a child about ten years old with bright blue eyes and a pigtail-like straw hanging down her back, was being scolded violently by the farmer's wife, who was presiding in person over the rentrée of the animals, for having brought her geese home on a run. They wouldn't eat, and would certainly all be ill, and probably die before morning. There is a pretty little old chateau at Boursun, the park, however, so shut in by high walls that one sees nothing in passing. W. had shot there once or twice in former years, but it has changed hands very often. Sometimes we paid more humble visits, not to Chateauf, but to the principal people of the little country town near, from which we had all our provisions. We went to see the doctor's wife, the notary's wife, the mayor's wife, and the two schools, the asile, or infant school, and the more important school for bigger girls. The old doctor was quite a character, had been for years in the country, knew everybody in everybody's private history. He was the doctor of the chateau by the year, attended to everybody, masters and servants, and received a regular salary, like a secretary. He didn't come very often for us in his medical capacity, but he often dropped in at the end of the day to have a talk with W. The first time I saw him, W presented him to me as un bon ami de la famille. I naturally put out my hand, which so astonished and disconcerted him, he barely touched the tips of my fingers, that I was rather bewildered. W explained after he had gone that in that class of life in France they never shook hands with a lady, and that the poor man was very much embarrassed. He was very useful to W as a political agent, and he was kind to the poor people and took small or no fees. They all loved him and talked to him quite freely. His womenkind were very shy and provincial. I think our visits were a great trial to them. They always returned them most punctiliously and came in all their best clothes. When we went to see them, we generally found them in short black skirts, and when they were no longer very young, with black caps. But they always had handsome silk dresses, velvet cloaks, and hats with flowers and feathers when they came to see us. 
Some of them took the cup of tea we offered, but they didn't know what to do with it, and sat on the edge of their chairs, looking quite miserable until we relieved them of the burden of the teacup. Madame A. was rather against the tea table. She preferred the old-fashioned tray handed around with wine and cakes, but I persuaded her to try, and after a little while she acknowledged that it was better to have the tea table brought in. It made a diversion. I got up to make tea. Someone gave me a chair, someone else handed the cups. It made a little movement, and was not so stiff as when we all sat for over an hour on the same chairs making conversation. It is terrible to have to make conversation, and extraordinary how little one finds to say. We had always talked easily enough at home, but then things came more naturally, and even the violent family discussions were amusing, but my recollection of these French provincial visits is something awful. Everybody's so polite, so stiff, in the long pauses when nobody seemed to have anything to say. I, of course, was a novelty and a foreign element. They didn't quite know what to do with me. Even to Madame A., and I grew very fond of her, and she was invariably charming to me. I was something different. We had many talks on every possible subject during our long drives, and also in the winter afternoons. At first, I had my tea always upstairs, in my own little salon, which I loved with the curtains drawn, a bright wood fire burning, and all my books about. But when I found that she sat alone, in the big drawing room, not able to occupy herself in any way, I asked her if I might order my tea there, and there were very few afternoons that I didn't sit with her when I was at home. She talked often about her early married life, winters in Cannes and in Paris, where they received a great deal principally Protestants, and I fancied she sometimes regretted the interchange of ideas and the brilliant conversation she had been accustomed to, but she never said it. She was never tired of hearing about my early days in America, our family life, the extraordinary liberty of the young people, etc. We often talked over the religious question, and though we were both Protestants, we were as far apart almost as if one was a pagan. Protestantism in France always has seemed to me such a rigid form of worship, so little calculated to influence young people or draw them to church. The plain, bare churches with whitewashed walls, the long sermons and extempore prayers, speaking so much of the anger of God and the terrible punishments awaiting the sinner, the trials and sorrows that must come to all. I often think of a sermon I heard preached in one Protestant church to the boys and girls who were making their first communion. All little things, the girls in their white frocks and long white veils, the boys in white waistcoats and white ribbons on their arms, making such a pretty group as they sat on the front benches listening hard to all the preacher said. I wondered that the young earnest faces didn't suggest something to him besides the horrors of eternal punishment, the wickedness and temptations of the world they were going to face, but his only idea seemed to be that he must warn them all of the snares and temptations that were going to beset their paths. Madame A. couldn't understand my ideas when I said I loved the Episcopal service, the prayers and litany I had always heard, the Easter and Christmas hymns I had always sung, the carols, the anthems, the great organ, the flowers at Easter, the greens at Christmas. All that seemed to her to be a false sentiment appealing to the senses and imagination. But if it brings people to church, and the beautiful music elevates them and raises their thoughts to higher things... That is not religion. Real religion means the prayer of St. Christostom. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will grant their requests. 
That is all very well for really religious, strong people who think about their religion and don't care for any outward expression of it, but for weaker souls who want to be helped, and who are helped by the beautiful music and the familiar prayers, surely it is better to give them something that brings them to church and makes them better men and women than to frighten them away with such strict, uncompromising doctrines. No, that is only sentiment, not real religious feeling. I don't think we ever understood each other any better on that subject, and we discussed it so often. Madame A., with whom I made my rounds of calling at the neighborhood Chateau, was a charming companion. She had lived a great deal in Paris, in the Protestant Coterie, which was very intellectual and cultivated. The Salon of the Duchesse de Broglie, Madame de Stal, Dossonville, Guizot, were the most interesting and recherché, very exclusive and very serious, but a center for all political and literary talk. I have often heard my husband say some of the best talkers in society s'étaient formés dans ces salons, where, as young men, they listened modestly to all the brilliant conversation going on around them. It was an exception when we found anyone at home when we called in the neighborhood, and when we did, it was evident that afternoon visits were a rarity. We did get in one cold November afternoon, and our visit was a sample of many others that we paid. The door was opened by a footman, struggling into his coat with a handful of faggots in his arms. He ushered us through several bare, stiff, cold rooms, proportions handsome enough, to a smaller salon which the family usually occupied. Then he lighted a fire, which consisted principally of smoke, and went to summon his mistress. The living room was just as bare and stiff as the others, no trace of anything that looked like habitation or what we should consider comfort. No books, nor work, nor flowers. That, however, is comparatively recent in France. I remember quite well Madame Casimir Perrier telling me that when she went with her husband to St. Petersburg about fifty years ago, one of the things that struck her most in the Russian salon was the quantity of green plants and cut flowers. She had never seen them in France. There were often fine pictures, tapestries, and furniture, all the chairs in a row against the wall. Our visits were always quite long, as most of the chateau were at a certain distance, and we were obliged to stay an hour and a half, sometimes longer, to rest the horses. It was before the days of five o'clock tea. A tray was brought in with sweet wine, malaga or vin de chypre, and cakes, ladies' fingers, which evidently had figured often before on similar occasions. Conversation languished sometimes, though Madame A. was wonderful, talking so easily about everything. In the smaller places, when people rarely went to Paris, it ran always in the same grooves. The woods, the hunting, very good in the Villecotre forest. The schoolmaster, so difficult to get proper books for the children to read the curé, and all local gossip, as much about the iniquities of the Republic as could be said before the wife of a Republican senator. Wherever we went, even to the largest chateau, where the family went to Paris for the season, the talk was almost entirely confined to France and French interests. Books, politics, music, people, nothing existed apparently au-delà des frontières. America was an unknown quantity. It was strange to see intelligent people living in the world so curiously indifferent as to what went on in other countries. At first I used to talk a little about America and Rome, where I had lived many years and at such an interesting time, the last days of Pio Nonno and the transformation of the old superstitious papal Rome to the capital of young Italy. But I soon realized that it didn't interest anyone, and by degrees I learned to talk like all the rest. I often think of one visit to a charming little Louis XV chateau, standing quite on the edge of the forest, just room enough for the house, 
and the little hamlet at the gates. A magnificent view of the forest, quite close to the lawn behind the chateau, and then sweeping off a dark blue mass as far as one could see. We were shown into a large high room, no carpet, no fire, some fine portraits, very little furniture, all close against the wall, a round table in the middle with something on it. I couldn't make out what at first. Neither books, reviews, nor even a photographic album, the supreme resource of provincial subtle. When we got up to take leave, I managed to get near the table, and the ornament was a large white plate with a piece of flypaper on it. The mistress of the house was shy and uncomfortable, sent at once for her husband, and withdrew from the conversation as soon as he appeared, leaving him to make all the frais. We walked a little around the park before leaving. It was really a lovely little place, with its background of forest and the quiet, sleepy little village in front, very lonely and far from everything, but with a certain charm of its own. Two or three dogs were playing in the courtyard, and one curious little animal who made a rush at the strangers. I was rather taken aback, particularly when the master of the house told me not to be afraid. It was only a marquesin, small wild boar, who had been born on the place and was as quiet as a kitten. I did not think the great tusks and square shaggy head looked very pleasant, but the little thing was quiet enough, came and rubbed itself against its master's legs and played quite happily with the dogs. We heard afterward that they were obliged to kill it. It grew fierce and unmanageable, and no one would come near the place. I took Henrietta with me sometimes when I had a distant visit to pay. An hour and a half's drive alone on a country road where you never meet anything was rather dull. We went one cold December afternoon to call upon Madame B., the widow of an old friend and colleague of W.'s. We were in the open carriage, well wrapped up, and enjoyed the drive immensely. The country looked beautiful in the bright winter sunshine, the distant forest always in a blue mist, the trees with their branches white with givre, hoarfrost, and patches of snow and ice all over the fields. For a wonder, we didn't go through the forest, drove straight away from it, and had charming effects of color upon some of the thatched cottages in the villages we passed through. One or two had been mended recently, and the mixture of old brown, bright red, and glistening white was quite lovely. We went almost entirely along the Great Plains, occasionally small bits of wood and very fair hills as we got near our destination. The villages always very scattered and almost deserted. When it is cold, everybody stays indoors. And, of course, there is no work to be done on the farms when the ground is hard frozen. It is a difficult question to know what to do with the men of all the small hamlets when the real winter sets in. The big farms turn off many of their laborers and as it is purely agricultural country, all around us there is literally nothing to do. My husband and several of the owners of large estates gave work to many with their regular coop of wood, but that only lasts a short time, and the men who are willing to work but can find nothing drift naturally into cafes and billiard saloons where they read cheap bad papers and talk politics of the wildest description. We found our chateau very well situated on the top of a hill, a good avenue leading up to the gate, a pretty little park with fine trees at the back, the tower of the village church just visible through the trees at the end of the central alley. It was hardly a chateau, half manor, half farm. We drove into a large courtyard, or rather farmyard, quite deserted, no one visible anywhere. The door of the house was open, but there was no bell nor apparently any means of communicating with anyone. Hubert cracked his whip noisily several times without any result 
and we were just wondering what we should do, perhaps put our cards under a stone on the steps, when a man appeared, said Madame B. was at home, but she was in the stable looking after a sick cow. He would go and tell her we were there. In a few minutes, she appeared attired in a short, rusty black shirt, sabot on her feet, and black woolen shawl over her head and shoulders. She seemed quite pleased to see us, was not at all put out by being caught in such very simple attire, begged us to come in and ushered us through a long, narrow hall and several cold, comfortless rooms, the shutters not open and no fire anywhere, into her bedroom. All the furniture, chairs, tables, and bed, was covered with linen. She explained that it was her lessive, general wash, she had just made, and all the linen was dry, but she had not had time to put it away. She called a maid, and they cleared off two chairs. She sat on the bed. It was frightfully cold. We were thankful we had kept our wraps on. She said she supposed we would like a fire after our long, cold drive and rang for a man to bring some wood. He, in his shirt sleeves, appeared with two or three logs of wood and was preparing to make a fire with them all, but she stopped him, said one log was enough, the ladies were not going to stay long, so naturally we had no fire and clouds of smoke. She was very talkative, never stopped, told us all about her servants, her husband's political campaigns, and how W. would never have been named to the Conseil General if Monsieur B. hadn't done all his work for him. She asked a great many questions, answering them all herself, then said, I don't offer you any tea, as I know you always go back to have your tea at home, and I am quite sure you don't want any wine. There was such an evident reluctance to give us anything that I didn't like to insist, and said we must really be going, and we had a long drive before us, though I should have liked something hot. Tea, of course, she knew nothing about, but even a glass of ordinary hot wine, which they make very well in France, would have been acceptable. Henrietta was furious. She was shivering with cold, her eyes smarting with the smoke, and not at all interested in Madame B.'s political career or Madame's servants, and said she would have been thankful to have even a glass of vin de Chypre. It was unfortunate, perhaps, that we had arrived during the lessive. That is always a most important function in France. In almost all the big houses in the country, small ones too, that is the way they do their washing. Once a month or once every three months, according to the size of the establishment, the whole washing of the household is done. All the linen, masters, servants, guests, house is turned out. The linen closets cleaned and aired. Everyone looks busy and energetic. It is quite a long affair, lasts three or four days. I often went to see the performance when we made our lessive at the chateau every month. It always interested our English and American friends, as the washing is never done in that way in either of their countries. It was very convenient at our place, as we had plenty of room. The lavoir stood at the top of the steps leading into the kitchen gardens. There was a large, square tank sunk in the ground so that the women could kneel to their work, then a little higher, another of beautiful clear water, all under cover. Just across the path, there was a small house with a blazing wood fire. In the middle, an enormous tub where all the linen was passed through wood ashes. There were four lessiveuses, washerwomen, sturdy peasant women with very short skirts, sabots, and turbans made of blue and white checked calico on their heads, their strong red arms bared above the elbow. The Mermichon, the eldest of the four, directed everything and kept them well at work, allowed very little talking. They generally chatter when they are washing and very often quarrel. When they are washing at the public lavoir in the village, one hears their shrill voices from a great distance. Our lingère, Madame Hubert, superintended the whole operation. 
She was very keen about it and remonstrated vigorously when they slapped the linen too hard sometimes with the little flat sticks, like spades, they used. The linen all came out beautifully white and smooth, hadn't the yellow look that all city wash clothes have. I think Madame B. was very glad to get rid of us and to begin folding her linen and putting it back in the big wooden wardrobes that one sees everywhere in France. Some of the old Norman wardrobes with handsome brass locks and beautifully carved doors are real works of art. Very difficult to get and very expensive. Fifty years ago, the peasant did not understand the value of such a meuble and parted with it easily. But now, with railways everywhere and strangers and bric-a-brac people always on the lookout for a really old piece of furniture, they understand quite well that they possess a treasure and exact its full value. Our drive back was rather shorter, downhill almost all the way, the horses going along at a good steady trot, knowing they were going home. When we drew up at our own door, Hubert remarked respectfully that he thought it was the first time that Madame et Mademoiselle had ever been received by a lady in Sabot. We wondered afterward if she had personally attended to the cow, in the way of poulticing or rubbing it. She certainly didn't wash her hands afterward, and it rather reminded me of one of Charles de Bunsen's stories when he was secretary of legation at Turin. In the summer they took a villa in the country, just out of the town, and had frequent visitors to lunch or dinner. One day, two of their friends, Italians, had spent the whole day with them, had walked in the garden, picked fruit and flowers, played with the child and the dogs and the pony, and as they were coming back to the house for dinner, Charles suggested that they might like to come up to his dressing room and wash their hands before dinner. To which one of them replied, Grazie, non mi sporco facilmente. Literal translation, thanks, I don't dirty myself easily, and declined the offer of soap and water. End of section 3. Recording by Adam Gammons.